Hey guys, before we get into this week's episode, I gotta give a huge shout out to all the people on Instagram who are taking part in the Launchpad Pod Horror Challenge. That's right, we put out 31 different topics about horror movies and just trying to prompt people to post awesome pictures and and posts about the horror movies that that correspond with our topics we had one that was like safety first and i pitched session nine the movie because it's all about asbestos removal <laughs> well, that's such an odd movie too i love that you it, chose that one. i love that movie it's so crazy i don't know if you guys knew this but this challenge Rumi wrote this challenge right? i wrote the whole I, thing i wrote so. all them out we had a lot of people kind of get involved but i want to give a big shout out to the all-stars right now puke drool Puke Drill every day has been dropping awesome suggestions for movies and hitting the topics really hard. I got to give a shout out to 20th Century Geek. We shout out these guys a lot, but they've been super supportive. The Britpod scene guys are, are super awesome. You should check their stuff out. Uh, Superior XX, Werewolf Chick. She's been drawing these pictures herself. She's been I saw. she's been drawing the pictures for the entries, and that's awesome too. And then the Dream Warrior, and they've all been just putting out great things. And we just guys, thank you so much for being involved with this horror challenge. And uh, yeah, keep it up, and see if you can keep up through the the rest of the month. But uh, it should be really fun. Not only do we like seeing that you guys are out there and that you guys are supporting us, but you guys have been such cool fans. When we see your responses to stuff like yeah. this, like the list, we're not just being like, oh, cool. We're like, oh, that was great. Like we. Yeah. We get so excited about so that, so please check that stuff out, and please leave us some reviews. Anything, anywhere you could leave a review about us. Yeah. Anywhere you subs- you can subscribe to us, especially on iTunes, especially on iTunes with a subscription as well as with reviews. It's a big, big help. It means a lot to us, and we we love knowing that you guys are out there. So please keep writing stuff for us. Subscribe to stuff. Review. Keep sending us pictures. Keep sending us drawings. We love getting artwork from you guys, and we actually are getting a good chunk of it, so please keep that up. We yes. love that. It's it's amazing to see the response, and uh, just thanks for everybody. But, on to this week's episode. This week, we have something very special. Mm-hmm. We got an mm-hmm. awesome interview mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Carl Gottlieb. Mm-hmm. Who's Carl Gottlieb? Mm-hmm. He is the screenwriter mm-hmm. for one of our favorite mm-hmm. movies. And if you can tell by Rumi's sound effects, he wrote, he wrote Jaws. <laughs> Carl Gottlieb, he's a great guy. I met him once years ago at a screening at Emerson College where Rumi and I went to, to school. And I reminded him about that over some social media and got in touch with him. And he was gracious enough to come on our show. And we had a great time talking with this guy. So please check it out. Mission sequence start. Six. Today on the Launchpad Podcast, we have Carl Gottlieb with us. He's a famous Hollywood writer. He wrote The Jerk. He wrote for the Smothers Brothers. He was a big part of the WGA, but he's probably most well-known for writing Jaws 1, 2, and 3. So it leads me to the first question, Carl. Do you have anything against sharks? (laughs) No, on the contrary. Sharks have been very, very good to me. (laughs) We are, are, are huge fans of those movies, but we, we want to take it back to the beginning a little bit. I, I, I did a little research beforehand. I, I did my due diligence and heard that you weren't much into comic books as a kid. Is that correct? True. Once I discovered I could buy books for the same amount of money, yeah, uh, went back to comics again. <laughs> and so did you grow up on like pulp novels and like uh, westerns and mysteries? Uh, well, I, I, I started with boys' books, you know, 
Tom Swift and Bamba the Jungle Boy and Tarzan. And then I, I uh, very quickly discovered Pulp Fiction. I, I read all of Louis L'Amour and the Hopalong Cassidy series of books. I read all the, a bunch of westerns. I read a lot of detective fiction, fiction from the 40s. You know, what, whatever, was a, whatever was a pop novel, I was, I was reading it. In, mixed in there, of course, were, you know, Treasure Island and Kidnapped and Solomon's Mind, you know, all, all the great adventure fiction that was coming out that wasn't, that wasn't pulp, that was really good writing. Contiki for nonfiction, best gift, gift I ever got when I was 11 or 12, somebody gave me the complete Sherlock Holmes. Nice. Oh. All nice. the work. And, you know, I never went back after that. <laughs> now, the, the, the books and the stories and the, and the genres that you've named, what about those inspired you as not only a reader, but eventually a writer? The style of, of storytelling in those books was very straightforward and compelling. The plot just, you know, kept on coming at you. Uh, Kidnapped is a great version. You know, it starts with a kid working working at home in a boarding house and a mysterious guy shows up with an eye patch and, you know, and it goes from there. The next thing you know, he's on an island and they're, they're in a stockade defending themselves against pirates and Long John Silver is threatening him and cajoling him. And it's great stuff for a kid. Yeah, all that adventure, all the... the I mean, I, I think pirates are so underutilized in today's era. I mean, I, I love pirate movies and pirate stories. And it's just like, very rarely do we get a good one. It is very rare. One hopes that with CGI, they can make better pirates. They stop because of budgets. You know, to get the ships and the battles right required very elaborate tanks and scale models uh, in the 50s. And then... Those were sold off, the studios downsized, the technicians and the crafts were lost, the models were lost or sold. So, and, but now, as, as both Life of Pi and Master and Commander have shown us, that it's uh, a little easier to do stuff at sea. So maybe we'll see a resurgence. Who knows? I'd love that. It'd be, it'd be interesting. And, you know, um, we've talked before, myself and Aaron both have done and do practicals. And, and Rumi... I, uh, we call each other Rumi, just so you don't get confused, Carl. Uh, Aaron and I both uh, call each other Rumi, but Aaron and I have both done practical and visual effects. Uh, that's been something that, you know, in the industry that we've been so interested in, and he and I have talked at length about our inspirations, and you were a huge part of that because one of the biggest parts of our childhood was these giant man-eating sharks that we would see in the video store. Um you know, Jaws is amazing, and Jaws is is a blockbuster, and it, it it did so many trailblazing things. But for me personally, and I think Aaron is in the same same boat, if you excuse the pun, we <laughs> love Jaws two and three. Like Jaws two and three have a special place, I know, in my heart. That's nice. I mean, they were both you know conscientious attempts to do sequels that were faithful to the original within the limits of you know time and budget and studio constraints and casting and all of you know all the related complications of filmmaking but they were fun to work on when you were working on the on the s second jaws did how soon did you know it was going to be a sequel like were you done with the first movie or was it a few years yeah no, no the first movie, first movie was done and out and uh that was it was released in 75 i think 77 or maybe early 78 they started 
they were, you know, it became obvious they were going to do a sequel. I mean, they were, how could they not? Sure. Uh, so so uh, they, they offered to, to me first, as uh, to, to, but the producers were exceptionally stingy and ungrateful. And they offered me scale, and that was, that was insulting. Sure. Well, it grossed as much as it had. So I told my agent, pass, we're not taking this job. And if they, if they come back to us, they're going to be in trouble and it's going to cost them. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. They, they fired the director, shit down the script, and uh, I had to step in at the last minute while they were shooting and uh, rewrite it on location. Wow, so much like the first film, you were basically yeah. writing as they went. Yeah, same, and, and the same for Jaws 3D. <laughs> oh, wow. By the time you get to a third movie, how how involved were the producers very insistent about certain things that were happening by, by that point? Um, no, I mean, the, to- the toughest part of making sequels and remakes and reboots is trying to figure out and it, it, it's much more difficult than it seems. Uh, trying to figure out what were the essential elements of the earlier film or story that were the most compelling. Uh, you know, yeah, big shark, we got that. that. You know, yes, we'll have a big shark. But what else? You know, how long do you have to wait before seeing the shark? Is uh, do you keep the shark a secret or do you kill it? You know. What about the body count? Do people go to see people killed, or did they see, or did they go to see people rescued? Uh, you know, the, 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 that's the hard part because there's no scientific way to figure it out. You're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And movies are such a collaborative art. Producers, the directors, and God help us, even the writers and storytellers, uh, kind of have to agree on key elements before you can put them in the script. One of the nice things about writing during production is that there's nobody behind you to rewrite you or second guess you. I mean, you write it, they shoot it, and then stuck with it, they gotta use it. That's a good point. Uh, that's pretty cool. I never thought about it like that. And you've wrote a lot, like you've written a lot of things. There's been a lot of things that have your stamp on them. Have you done a bunch that are both during production as things are shooting, or have you done more stuff where you write, like, you know, the more traditional way where you write it first and then rewrite it, and then people can give you notes and then they start shooting? About 50-50. Let's see, Dr. Detroit was a production rewrite. They were they were in production when I went on that one. Caveman was an original from from the, you know, from the very concept on all the way through you know, my directing it and doing post-production. Uh, oh, Which Way Is Up? That was a Richard Pryor film. Uh, that that was uh, a rewrite prior to production, so we were, you know, I was able to, you know, take notes and write with, with Richard Pryor, you know, get his input, and that was, that was helpful. And then I did a bunch of uncredited work on some other movies uh, that I don't discuss because I'm not credited on them, and it's not fair to the writers who are credited. So one thing I, I do want to ask before I get too far away from it for Jaws 3D, how much was did you know was going to be a 3D element like, oh, we got to have this coming at the camera. So write it in there. Or how much of that was planned on set? Like, well, we got to have this guy's hand floating towards camera so that it, it gives the 3D effect. That was luckily I did not have to worry too much about that. That was the province of Joe Alves, who was a production designer and trained as an artist. And he was directing, so he and the art department and the production designers would work on the elements, and and then they would communicate that to me. They'd say, you know, 
you know, there's nothing, you know, nothing 3D about this scene. It's, you know, just it's people at breakfast, you know, so fine. Uh, uh, sometimes they say, okay, now this, this one here is going to be underwater and we need some foreground stuff just indicated in the script. And, you know, we'll, we'll be putting it in later when we shoot it. So it, it, was, a, it was a very comfortable collaboration. But they, they would tell me what they needed, and I would give them that. And then uh, as far as 3D visual effects, they were pretty much on their own. As far as human relationships and dialogue and conversations between people, that was, that was my job. You, you had a hard job, my friend. I think you did yeah. an amazing job. Uh, I have read and recently read the original Benchley novel for Jaws, and it's yeah. it's not bad, it's okay, but it's definitely not what the movie is. The oh. biggest thing that oh. I've found in that book is that, in my opinion, this is just my personal opinion, in the book you have Hooper, you have Quint, and you have Brody, and as far as I'm concerned, they're not really likable characters, whereas in your film, they are extremely likable characters who don't like each other at times. And I think the dynamic that you put in the, the, the film version of the characters is, like, incredibly superior to what is found in the novel. I guess I want to know, where, where did you draw some of that? that characterization from and if if so much of your work was done you know during production was some of that from being with the actors themselves oh very much so uh the uh, most of the casting for that picture was done you know in the last two weeks of pre-production wow that, that's when we got shaw and that's when we got dreyfus we always started with just roy and uh lorraine gary who played his wife uh and as as the actors came aboard uh, and I was friendly with Richard. I knew him from Los Angeles. We were pals from improvisational theater days. So, um, and I was on location. I was sharing a house with Stephen. So there's two things working to humanize the characters in the Fish movie. Uh, number one is Stephen's great, you know, admiration for authenticity and family and affection. That's a thread that runs through almost all his movies. Uh, that people behave authentically and that family life and married life can be very satisfying. Sure. We have, we have you know, Spielberg's view of the world. Right, right. Of, of the perfect world. And then, we, and then I was, you know, seeing the actors work. I was on stage with them and, you know, I was, I was performing with them uh, in certain scenes and other scenes. Uh, I would watch as, as they were being filmed. We talked to them, you know, at dinner after the show or at dailies. You know, we would, you know, it was a small island. You couldn't run away. So, <laughs> you know, I, I was writing dialogue for human voices that I could hear in my head during the day, that I could hear in real life during the day. So from that to writing credible dialogue is a very short step because you're, you're writing for a voice you know. Not a, not a fictional voice. Jaws, the first movie, Jaws, is my absolute favorite film of all time. But when you read the book, the book is great, and it seems like a great jumping-off point to make that film. But there's just so many differences 
Yeah. And like you so said, they, you mentioned they, the family, the Steven Spielberg family aspect. That's the, the children aren't mentioned in the book till almost halfway through, and then it's just a mention. Well, one, one of my questions is, did Peter Benchley have much say once you guys got started? Because I, I know a lot of oh. friends who are always like, well, the book was better. This happened in the book to, to any sort of novelization. But when you have the actual author there, what was that like? Well, it was a little awkward at first because uh, Peter had written the first draft of the screenplay. Right. Um, and then, and he was rewritten by a writer named Ackler, who did a very extensive rewrite. And then I, that's the script that I inherited when I began. You know, eventually had long ago, you know, gotten used to the idea that, you know, the picture was going to go with or without him. And he published a couple of, he, I think he was interviewed and he was rather dismissive of Stephen. Uh, he said he was, you know, a guy who liked, liked to make movies about toys and, and uh, you know, trucks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and Stephen, of course, gave his own interview in which he said he was trying to make a movie out of a turgid, southern, you know, popcorn novel with a lot of, you know, domestic, uh, lurid subplots, you know, mafia affair with uh, between the sheriff, uh, police chief's wife and the visiting oceanographer. And it wasn't until Benchley came up on location. Uh, he does, you know, he does a walk-on as the TV reporter. Sure. Um, when he got to location and, and we all met, we got to, you know, instead of, you know, dealing with some published version of an interview or listening, you know, to some, some reporters reporting of, of dialogue, yeah, you know, he was actually able to talk to Stephen and me and Zanuck and Brown and the actors. And he got to witness firsthand the difficulties that we were facing, you know, how hard it was to make a movie on location. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal no matter what the movie is. So he got to see that we, you know, a bunch of professionals were working hard trying to make his book into a movie. You know, we had dinner at the, at the house that we shared. So that one visit... And his day on camera, you know, completely humanized Peter to us, and gave gave Peter an idea of the you know the faces behind the comments, the people you know who were actually making the movie. Sure. And that that you know that changed everything, and from then on, we were pals. And again, I feel like comparing the book and the movie. There's so many. Um, it, it's not really fair because I feel like the the book, like you said, it's more about it's almost more about the relationships between some of the love interests. Whereas I feel like to say Jaws as a shark movie is super misleading because it's just as much about those three guys on the boat as it is about the shark and what he's doing. But there's a huge, uh, with Quint as a character, he goes through a, a very big kind of Ahab type of arc where he decides he wants to catch this shark. And I wanted to ask you in the book, there's two things that don't happen in the book that I want to uh, see where, where, why you thought it was so important to put in there. And that is, one, when Quint smashes the radio, and two, when Quint full throttles the boat, even though he knows it's going to wreck that boat. Just wanted to hear your thoughts of creating that, those moments for that character. Why was that so important to him and to the film as a whole? You know, in the book, Quint has, very, has no backstory. You don't know why he's monomaniacal. Uh, in the novel. Howard Sackler discovered the Indianapolis incident and wove that into the text, into that scene, into a scene that I wrote later, which was the, you know, 
comparing scars below deck, you know, during the evening after a day of, of uh, fruitless. One of the best scenes so in, good. In, in, in the history of cinema. I, thank you. It's a good scene. I, so I, <laughs> I, um, but, but that was all part of the process of, of humanizing the protagonist. Now you had, a, you had a reason for Quint to behave the way he did. You sensed this, you know, larger-than-life tragic figure who would rather capture this shark than anything. You know, you sacrifice his boat, he'll sacrifice the safety of the others on board. You know, the only time he ever softens the Dreyfus is when his methods don't work. The oceanographer has to go down underwater and with a dart gun full of poison and try to do it the scientific way, and that doesn't work either, and then they're in real trouble. So uh, it was uh, all part of, of, of both you know, humanizing the character and giving him a plausible, inhuman drive you know, for vengeance or completion, you know, describe it how you will. The shark becomes his destiny. We used to joke that it was... We were writing a combination of Moby Dick and Enemy of the People. Wow! Yeah, no, because because we've been calling this the Abe the Ahab question because he goes total Ahab when he destroys the radio. So a, a question I have is is do you consider Jaws horror? If you were in a video store, where would you put Jaws? Um, personally, I, I I would put it in, in like high inve- high adventure, like oh. Man Who Would Be King. Okay. Oh, excellent. But. but uh, the, the genre, as it turns out, is horror because of the, of the, the shark is a great horror. It's just as scary as Freddy or Jason, yeah. perhaps or so. If, you, if you're going to put it in a genre, it, I guess it, it is horror. But I would have loved to have write it, written it as, as a movie of high adventure, but that was my personal taste. Well, you definitely get a couple of those moments when when the boat is sinking. I, it, it has such a pirate vibe. Like like so many pirate movies end with them, you know, hanging on to the last mast as it goes underwater. And I, I you know, that's just it has a lot of that imagery in those moments when they get out to sea. But uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the pirate tropes were very much present, and and. Uh in fact, Stephen had, had brought some vinyl records, you know, just from his personal collection, just music he wanted to hear. But he used to play, it was great Hollywood movie scores. He was, you know, trying to, you know, psych himself up by playing music from other movies. And one of his favorite scores was Eric Korngold of the Seahawk, which he played all the time. And when, when John Williams came on board, uh, he played that for John Williams for, can we do some of this? And sure enough, if you look at the the chases, the two barrel chase, the three barrel chase, you'll you'll hear you know echoes of 1940s pirate movies. When you said that you you were roommates with Steven Spielberg while making this movie, like I I got super excited because I mean every film major would just be like, oh, just to hang out with him for a couple hours would be amazing. What, being roommates with Steven Spielberg while making this movie, how, what was that like? <laughs> Um, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, we were just, you know, a, cu- a couple of guys making a movie. <laughs> so he had all the, re- he had all the responsibility and, and all the work. I was acting, you know, on days when I was acting, I didn't have to write. I just showed up <laughs> on the set and they gave me, gave me my clothes and pointed me, you know, where to, where to say my lines, reminded me that I had to write those lines. And then, uh, we'd go do the scene and the rest of the time, you know, it, we would talk about 
what we had shot so far, what was left to shoot, what would be you know useful dialogue, what would be good scraps of business. You know, I would suggest bits of visual business uh, that Stephen would incorporate into the shooting. Uh, he would suggest dialogue. Uh, he would. He had a, a there was an island character on the vineyard named Craig Kingsbury, who was uh, just a salty old coot with a colorful turn of language. And Stephen said, "Oh, hang out with Craig. Just listen to what he says. He's he's like Clint." <clears throat> so uh, Robert Shaw wound up saying some things that Craig Kingsbury said. Wow. That's amazing that you could find those characters in real life and just kind of bring them into the script in subtle ways. That's awesome. Yeah. But, but and, and as far as hanging out was, you know, he, uh, he had, he had quirks, but he was, he was the director and everybody, every, everybody's there to make his job easier. Uh, nobody's there to make the writer's job easier. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but since I was living with the director, you know, not literally, uh, you know, I, I got the benefit of all that. <laughs> That's cool. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's such a storybook. Well, for, for people who weren't there, I'm sure you thought it was a lot of work, but for, for everyone who was not on that movie, it seems like such an amazing, like, did, did you know, did you know at any point during the shoot that Jaws would turn out to be the movie that it was? No, nobody did. Everybody was just trying to make, make the best movie they could under the circumstances, which were difficult. Sure. It was, it was, uh, it was kind of, you know, it was, it was a fairly standard Hollywood studio production in the old Hollywood sense of, you know, being a company on location with a budget. And yeah, the, the thing that was nice about Jaws, and this is only in retrospect, <laughs> is that for better or worse, it was a product of the studio system. And that meant there were professionals at every level, you know, from the Teamsters who drove the, the big vehicles to the lowliest uh, grip and, and uh, camera assistant and wardrobe attendant. The, everybody was a professional and was doing the best they could. Uh, it, it, you know, if, if nobody sets out to make a bad movie. I mean, if you went on location during the making of uh, you know, Lone Ranger, to, to name us a real stinker, um, <laughs> if, you know, no, nobody said, you know, we're going we're gonna to make a stinker. They just said, well, we're, we're you know, trying to make a movie out of the scripts that they had. It was pretty awful. And then, <laughs> sure. when, and then when Johnny Depp said, I want to wear a dead bird on my head, nobody had the balls to tell him, don't do that. <laughs> so you're being an asshole. <laughs> so uh, you know that's the difference. Uh, but but you know, in, in, in Jaws was a studio production. It was going to be a summer a summer popcorn movie. It was made with plenty of lead time, so that uh, e even with the cost overruns and the budgets and the of being you know two months behind schedule, we had that, that whole winter to make it right. Mm. Verna, of course, Verna Fields won a, an Oscar for her editing, and John Williams won an Oscar for his score. And those two were things that came to the picture afterwards. I mean, you know, I mean, Verna was cutting the picture, you know, from day one. Right. But uh, uh, she didn't. She finished it, you know, in her garage at home. Wow. Uh, work, working at home. Well, it, you know, it's like you said. Nobody really thinks about making 
a bad movie, but there are so many. And Aaron and I are both huge fans of bad B movies. We're like huge, huge fans. I would almost say connoisseurs if I wasn't trying to brag to you, but (laughs) I feel directly or indirectly Jaws set off a large amount of those like killer blank, you know, fill in the blank, what kind of animal, killer blank movies. Jaws, I don't think, was the very first, but it was certainly the biggest, and it was the best. It was not short exploitation. It was not a B movie. It was a great movie, but so many, you know, almost like Xerox copies of movies came out after that with killer, you know, insert the animal, but there's been so many shark ones. So, like, so many. Have you seen any of these? I've seen some of them, uh, no, I take it back. I have not seen The Shallows. I haven't seen Deep Blue Sea. Uh, I haven't seen Sharknado. I haven't seen... There's uh, even worse ones I haven't that. seen Grizzly. I haven't seen uh, Orca. Uh, <laughs> no, there's a whole... I, I know... I don't want to see them. I mean, you know, it's like... If, if you're an architect and you've built you know, a nice house with a particularly attractive roof line that blends right into the garage and driveway. And then you go to a, you know, you drive out to a development and you see 6,000 tract homes that have, you know, pirated that design and then cheapened it so they can do it with mass production and make, you know, build a thousand units like it. You know, you look at the knockoffs and you say, well, that, you know, kind of shaped like my house, but it's not my house and it's probably not as comfortable to live in. And it's not attractive to the eye, so let's get out of here. Keep driving. <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> for sure. And then there were get people like old, me, and, me. Get back to old Pasadena and look at some craftsman house. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you. We have a list of a couple movies here that are not quite Jaws. Would you be up for listening to a quick one-liner from each and seeing if you can tell me if you think it's a real movie or not a real movie? Sure. All right. Here we go. Ready? In no particular order. Sharkenstein. During World War II, Nazi scientists create a monster using body parts of the greatest killers in the sea. Now a small town is haunted by a mysterious, murderous monster. So you got to figure out if that's either a real movie that's out there or something that I made up last night. Uh, I'd say you made it up last night. Eh, that's a real one. <laughs> Holy shit. Right. I'm going to tell you right now, Kark, spo- spoiler alert, they only get worse. All right, how about this one? Great White of the Living Dead. When a strange meteor passes through Earth's atmosphere, the corpses of recently deceased sharks come back to biting life. In aquariums, beaches, and even in restaurants, dead sharks attack the unsuspecting. Smaller brains mean smaller... Um, excuse me. Smaller brains mean smaller targets, making the zombie sharks seemingly unstoppable. I don't know. I so dumb. It's plausible, right? You can make a movie out of that. I would watch it. I'll tell you right now. I would watch it. Sadly, that is a fake one, but I would watch it if that was real. Shark Exorcist. A demonic nun summons Satan to a small fishing village where he takes over the bodies of a great white shark and a young woman. A priest must fight both teeth and temptation on land and sea in order to send these man killers back to hell before the tide comes in for good. <laughs> I guess it's a real one. But yeah. No, I don't even know the name of that one. That one's, it's Shark Exorcist. You can find it on Amazon if you've got absolutely nothing to do tonight. <laughs> Let me ask you this. And at the beginning of this, of this interview, Rumi made a joke about uh, you not liking sharks, and you said it was actually the contrary. They've been good to you. I assume that you know a little bit more about sharks than the next guy. Why do you think 
that Hollywood to, to, you know, in quotes, Hollywood has been so interested in sharks making all these horror movies and action movies and stuff, including or involving sharks. Why do you think shark as an animal is so appealing to the public? For one thing, we don't know a lot about them. You know, obviously in 1974, we knew even less. Uh, they are, a, they're a great new villain. If, you know, the, the, the thing that, that I think that makes uh, Peter Benchley, you know, deserve every penny that he made for the movie was his ability to transform kind of a mean fish that we saw in documentaries like Blue Water, White Death. To personify it as a as a villain, you know, give it give it that you know human seeking drive. And in the history of horror movies, you got to remember that most horror movies are based on uh, you know someone else's notion of horror. I mean, whether it's Frankenstein or the Wolfman or zombies or the undead, those are all. Those have always been scary. You know, that goes back to medieval literature, those, those creatures. I remember reading um, a book about copyrights and trademarks, uh, The Mummy, the universal version of The Mummy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only screen villain that didn't have an antecedent in literature. The oh, Mummy was a, an original creation. Oh, wow. That's really, when you really think about, like, historically, that's really interesting. Yeah, all the werewolves and zombies and the undead and, and, and uh, ghosts and ghouls and eat flesh eaters. That's been, you know, that goes back to primitive folklore. You know, that's, that's right. pre-literate part of the, the stories of our, of our culture. I guess at the time, the mummy had a had a popular culture thing because the the people who discovered King Tut's tomb and people were dying because they were getting sick from being down in musty tombs for so long. But that the 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 idea of the curse came about, and I think that's probably where they built off of. Yeah, there there was a a a a, uh, a cult of Egyptology. They, I, I think during the twenties and the thirties, they first discovered the Valley of the Kings and the tombs, and you know. And it became, you know, a huge, a huge uh, fad. It was all, it was in, you know, popular fiction. It was in the weekly news magazines. You know, the guy, you know, guys got a lot of uh, publicity for being the first to discover King Tut and who was King Tut and all, all of that. So, the, the, I mean, that, but that explains why the movie became popular. But the, there had been no mummy villains before 1930-something. Yeah, wow. Whereas the others all had antecedents in literature and folklore. Ancient folklore, yeah. Do you have a favorite classic monster? I grew up on the Universal Monsters. I love those Universal Monsters. Uh, I have written a script that I sold, which is in development limbo, sadly, Mm. uh, called Wolf and Blood. And it's a uh, a cop show, buddy cop show with a twist. Two, two, two detectives, a uh, man and a woman. He's a werewolf, she's a vampire. And they have a guilty secret, which they learn when they're teamed up. And they've been good guys all their life because they don't like to be, you know, they don't want to kill people. That's why they're cops. And they discover that the killer that they're chasing is from the dark side. So their existential dilemma, do they give in to the darker side of their nature to catch this guy? That's, that's their struggle. So I, I like werewolves and vampires 
And I love stories in which we learn about, you know, kind of like Anne Rice, the diary, you know, the vampire diaries. Yeah. I, I love how you know, stories about how supernatural creatures live, uh, you know, live among us and, and you know, kind of hide their true nature. Yeah, infiltrate the everyday. That sounds like a really cool premise because especially as so many like uh, detective stories, it's like they they become animals to catch a to catch an animal, but this has like an already predisposition to that sort of darker side. That's 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 cool. And then, and because they're a man and a woman, there's a sexual attraction between them, but when they actually try to you know move on that attraction, they almost kill each other because Werewolves and vampires don't get along, in, you know, in naked flesh. Oh wow! That oh man! I would I would watch don't make that. yeah yeah we'll see we'll see what what we can do with our connects make make that <laughs> I wish we had connects to make that happen that'd be amazing. The more people want to see wolf and blood, the better chance we have of getting it made. One of the things that I want to come back to is um, horror always gets kind of a weird rap and and. You know, especially back in the early comic book days, like the EC comics, like Tales from the Crypt, and a oh, lot. Oh yeah, of, I, I love those. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we did too. But they they had a big censorship problem. They got they kept getting busted by by the comic book league. And and I know that you worked on the Smothers Brothers show, and they were big champions of free speech and fighting censorship. I was just wondering if you could touch a little bit on what that was like to be part of a show that was on the forefront of fighting censorship. Well, that that was you know the, the writing staff. And Tommy Smothers, who was uh, the most active of the two brothers when it came to producing the show, mm-hmm. shaping its content, uh, we were all what you would call progressives, you know, or, you know, left libtards. We were, you know, left-leaning, <laughs> left-leaning progressives. And with Nixon and then later Johnson as president, we, you know, there, there was a lot to talk about. The Vietnam was going on. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of civil strife. Uh, the, the South was not yet fully integrated. There was lots to talk about. As a matter of fact, we we had uh, we had a famous blackout in which a black groom kissed a white bride, and the the minister says, "May I have?" Instead of saying, "May I have the ring, please?" says, "May I have the rope, please?" Oh. So, so we you know we we were. Uh, we were very, very conscious of that, and uh, and of course the network did not like to ruffle feathers. I mean, that was uh, remember we were in the Sunday night time slot, which is the most watched hour of television nationally. You know, Sunday from eight to ten p.m. The network, which at that time prided itself on being the Tiffany of networks and being a very classy operation, they didn't like political humor at a serious level. I mean, they didn't mind if laughing, you know, had Nixon saying, suck it to me. But they, you know, when it came to substantive social criticism. They, they just couldn't handle. They were, they were averse to that. We, it was a bit of a drag. It's funny that you brought up the suck it to me because just last night I was trying to peg where that came from. And, and I know that's a, a weird thing for a 30 something to be quite like, was it laughing or was it <laughs> Rowan? And, yeah. You know, who, who came up and, and it was, it was laughing with Nixon. That's funny. Yeah. It was, a la- it was, I think Joanne Worley. 
So when you guys were, were, were dealing with that, where, where do you think that that struggle has gone now? Do you think we have sort of beat censorship or, or where do you think that's grown to in today's time? What is the, the state of censorship in entertainment? Very little. I mean, the, the, nowadays there's so many alternative platforms. I mean, if you watch, I mean, if you just watch on primetime, any Chuck Lorre half hour, you'll hear stuff that was unthinkable in the 70s. I mean, jokes about condoms, jokes about uh, birth control pills, jokes about bodily functions, fart jokes, uh, hickey jokes, uh, jokes about impotence or hypersexuality. You know, those, you you know, you couldn't come near those things in in the 70s. Thanks to, you know, there was a a comedy revolution. Thank you, Comedy Channel. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, 10 years of... You know, comedians standing against the brick wall backdrop doing funny monologues. The world of, of content now is wide open. I mean, if you can't do it on network television, you can do it uh, uh, on a cable show or on a, a video on demand. Or if you want to get really outre, you can do a webcast or a podcast, so webisodes. The proliferation of platforms for our work has made it possible to do just about anything. I mean, there's almost no boundaries anymore. I mean, you've got a name, you know, like an award-winning actor playing a transgender woman on, on, on prime time. For those of us who lived through the bad old times, when you couldn't, you know, when Lucy and Ricky couldn't be shown sleeping in the same bed, you had to have, they had to have twin beds. Yeah. Even if they were married, they couldn't sleep together. Uh, you know, they've been come a long way in the last 50, 60 years. But you can say that about any 50-year period. You know, 1900 to 1950 saw some amazing changes. You know, 1950 to 2000, 2000 till now. Over time, you know, all things become possible and many things get forgotten. Well, we definitely thank thank you for that good fight on that on the censorship side. I mean, I know that must have been a struggle, but I think it really paved the way for a lot of amazing things to happen. I mean, we we wouldn't be able to have so much of the stuff we see today if it wasn't for just the the simple beginnings and just putting down your foot to say, you know, we don't approve of of somebody telling us we can't say sure, the war yeah. isn't good to, to to do a hard transition back to to like that blockbuster era in the in the 70s uh when when jaws suddenly had lines around the block it was the first blockbuster what was that feeling when you're like oh this is great people are loving this what was that like to see happen well you know i, I I've, I've been lucky enough to be involved with uh, you know a few hits and e- even when i was doing stage work the committee was a very successful stage show it sold out its small venue regularly. Kind of are familiar with what it is to be a hit or to be a star. I mean, I had friends. I mean, my my wife and I had met Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall when we were all kind of young and new in the business and just all starting. And then uh, then there was a moment when Rob and Penny, Rob and Penny were on the two of the top ten shows in television. And we could still almost behave normally. You know, we, we didn't have to go out with an entourage, didn't have to have bodyguards and security. We were aware of it, but, you know, you, there was a, a different tone. To, there wasn't a culture of celebrity the way there is now. There was no access Hollywood. There was no entertainment tonight. There was no, you know, the, the newspapers did not publish the grosses of movies on Monday morning, uh, what the weekend grosses were. Nowadays, you know, everybody has two businesses, their own and show business. Sure. Yep. Everybody's, you know, everybody's a fucking expert. 
and uh, you know it's it's annoying because they're not. It's, it's still it's still like the army or the church. It's an institution, and you have to be in it to understand it. And even then, there's no guarantees. So uh, the same way a career military officer might feel about civilians, or a church official might feel about you know parishioners wanting stuff. That's how people at show business feel about everybody else. Sure. Where do you see the the future of of the blockbuster? Because right now, like we we said, you know, the, the block when Jaws came out, that was a that was a phenomenon. But now every movie is like orchestrated and engineered to try and be that. What do you think that's done for the industry? And wh- where do you see the the blockbuster going in the future? The pursuit of those mega successes is uh, probably one of the reasons for. The near death of Hollywood. I mean, sure. we're going through a death experience now. Um, uh, what what it will take is for every major studio to have a two hundred million dollar failure, and only then, no, nobody makes a billion dollars worldwide on a movie. Then they will wake up, and I hope it's not too late. And then they will return to making real stories about real people. The way they used to do, you know, for the first seventy years of motion pictures. In the seventies, there they were going through a time of like, it was studios trying something different because at the end of like the musical era of golden Hollywood, they were like, well, we've been having these major, you know, studios are kind of failing, so let's give these young directors a, a try. And we got Jaws, we got Star Wars, we got you know, Coppola was making movies, and it was giving directors a chance. And I feel like things have gotten so big that you, like you said, you can't get a small drama. You can't even get like a low-budget sci-fi movie to get theatrical release because if it do- it doesn't compare to Guardians of the Galaxy, you know they don't want to hear it. Yeah, and 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 that's unfortunate uh, uh, because they can't all be hits. Nobody knows what makes a hit. We can have an idea. We'll, we'll see if the makers of Guardians of the Galaxy can continue their string or if if it peters out. You know, it may just last three movies or four movies the way the fish movie did. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, and that's one of the better ones. I mean, they, you, you take the, most of the Marvel universe and, you know, they suck as badly on the big screen as they sucked as comics. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely have their moments uh, hit or miss. Do, do you, how do you feel about the superhero genre? I think it's, you know, I, I think it's stupid and inconsequential. I'm sorry they've devoted so much money to it. I think what what they forgot in their search for you know franchises is that you know 80% of those comic book characters were not hits in their comic book incarnation. I mean they they may have sold a million comic books, but you know so does a so does a hit novel, so does a so does a you know a good book, right? Uh, or a good record for that matter. Who actually stayed up nights waiting for the next issue of the Torch? Or, or, you know, Plastic Man, or for the most part, those, those, you know, Aquaman, The Flash, who cares? They weren't, they weren't even part of the culture when they were part of the culture. They were comic, they were, they were, they were crap. And if, you know, if, if you look for inspiration and all you're looking at is, you know, an acre of crap, then you're going to make a, a crap. You're going to come up with a crap result. What do you think? The uh, is there untapped potential in in novels that haven't been touched yet that would fill this sort of need for adventure? Like, what kind of properties do you think could fit into 
today's climate and still have something new to give. I, I am a huge fan of both C.S. Forrester, Raphael Sabatini, G.A. Henty, who wrote King Solomon's Mines. There's great adventure novels out there. Uh, I mean, they're kind of Victorian. They may be a little fussy or stuffy, and they, you know, they, there's no sex in them. But there certainly is high adventure, certainly more high adventure than in your average comic book. I would love to see a novella by C.S. Forrester called Rifleman Dodd, usually published in tandem with another novella called The Gun. They're both novels about the Iberian War, you know, the English and the Spanish fighting Napoleon and the French in the early 19th century. Very stirring, heroic, bloody adventures, and, you know, nobody, nobody knows about them. There's a, a wonderful fantasy series by S.N. Sterling, Island in the Sea of Time, and three kind of sequels, but they're uh, about a, uh, an, a post-apocalyptic future in which the apocalypse was a global phenomenon with, where fire and energy, uh, electricity stopped working. There was no electricity anymore, ever. Mm. And you couldn't make it, you couldn't manufacture it, you couldn't even... Basically, you could barely get a steam engine to work. So everything was thrown back on pre-18th century technology. And the only people who survived were people who had blacksmithing skills or agricultural skills and organizational skills to you know, keep a community together in the face of anarchy and disorder. That's interesting. And there's no zombies in it? No zombies. <laughs> Hard to believe in today's age that, 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 you know, everybody, the second you have post-apocalyptic anything, it's, it's either Mad Max or zombies. I, I, I do agree that I would like to see some stuff that's a different version of an apocalypse. If we're going to have to have apocalypse movies, I think there's other ways to go. We've, we've, we've done the, sure. the other two options. Well, if there's, if there's producers out there, and I'm sure there are, they should be made aware of S.N. Sterling's work, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G, starting with An Island in the Sea of Time. I think we'll definitely have to share with our listeners on our on our social media and stuff just uh, uh, some some of these p- names that you've mentioned. Like, hey, here's here's a reading list from Carl Gottlieb uh, of, of of if you're into adventure and you want to sort of see something different, you know, here's some amazing options. I, I'm I'm writing all of these down because, you know, it's it's. Sometimes it feels, even with the internet, it's hard to find something new or something that hasn't been done to death in the echo chamber that media has become. Yeah, no doubt. Go to the first, the, the early, in, in, there's a book called Captain Blood by Sabatini. Sure. Which was made into movies. I mean, a lot of the stuff was not ignored. The Hollywood studios in the 30s and 40s had very literate story departments who, who found this stuff. My favorite black and white movie is uh, Prisoner of Zenda which was written as a novel in like 1910 and made twice as a silent film and once as a sound film and then again in 39, which is a version I love. And then again, again after that, and then it became, it's, it's like a, a great durable story of romance and, and, and uh, chivalry and in a, weird, in a weird time where there were cavalry and pistols. So, so, you know, anything that used to pass for boys' adventure is... Uh, Really worth uh, worth looking at. We'll ask you one more question, then we'll let you go. Sure. If uh, your phone were to ring a half hour from now, 
and it was Hollywood. They were calling to tell you that they were making a movie and they needed you to come in and rewrite the script as we're going through production. Whether it was a movie that's been made before and they're remaking it or a movie that's never been touched, what would be your dream call? If you could get in there and fix any scripts that's either been done before or hasn't even been attempted yet, what would you love to do? Oh, good question. Ah, the, the movies I love are perfect and I wouldn't, I wouldn't tamper with them. So we're actually looking for movies that were made badly the first time. It's the ones that got so close but didn't make the mark. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the one I mentioned before by C.S. Forrester called The Gun. Mm-hmm. It was made as a movie with Sophia Loren and Frank Sinatra, and it was called The Pride and the Passion, and they missed the point completely. Oh. They, you know, they, they just got it wrong. And that's one I'd love to redo, because it's a very political story. It's about war and revolution. It's about a population rising around a popular icon to uh, throw off the oppressive invaders. And the hero of the movie, or the hero of the story, is this big cannon, which is you know, kind of found by a band of ragtag guerrillas who kind of figure out how to use it. And all of a sudden, because they have a real powerful engine of war, are able to go from being nitpicky guerrillas to uh, a little band that can threaten a fort because they can just batter the walls down and attack it. And then because they're successful, the population rises and comes to their assistance. And all of a sudden, instead of 50 guys, they got 500 guys. And instead of one cannon, they've got six cannons. And, and they become a force to be reckoned with and you know, almost turn the tide of the war until something happens, which I won't tell you. What year, what year was that? That's really interesting. It was uh, written in the 40s, I think. And it was probably, in some ways, reflected Forrest's... You know, I don't know what his politics were, but he, he wrote he wrote wonderful movies. He wrote wonderful books that became wonderful movies. There was one called um, Brown and the Resolution, which was about a sailor who gets marooned and separated from his ship. And on the island that he's marooned, a German warship anchors to perform some much-needed repairs and, and before going back out to kill more British. And this lone British sailor with a rifle manages to distract and hold off and delay this great German battleship from going about its business while its crew hunts for this guy in the hills who's shooting at them. And it affects the war in the Atlantic, you know, the sea war. Just one, one guy doing his job. Wow. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. I'll have to check that out. Again, it was, made, it was made into a movie, but not well. Yeah. yeah. I think part of why I love B-horror so much, I mean, I'm just such a horror fanatic, is is that very concept where it's like I'll watch something and it's like they did okay, but it gives me such inspiration of like, wow, man, if I ever got the chance to do a gimmick like that or to have a scene like that, I know I can see how they went wrong and where I could hopefully do better if ever given the chance. Yeah. I, I like I say I'm I'm not a a, a a fan of the horror genre, so 
so that's not where I go. But I go to romantic and high adventure. That's awesome. Yeah, adventure's great, and I, I definitely think that we need more more movies like that that have that aren't based off of just a comic book, but something. You know, I, I miss that that we don't have a lot of good adventure movies. You know, the swashbucklers, the the pirate movies, the adventure movies. It's it's really is a, a sort of been overshadowed by the comic book genre, the superhero sure, yeah. genre. I'm just looking at books by G.A. Henty, the Victorian, the Irish Brigade, Bonnie Prince Charlie, with Clive in India. I know the Irish Brigade. See, there you go. Lion of the North. That's a great, yeah. I read, Lion of the I, North. I, yeah, I read the Irish Brigade in uh, high school because somebody said it was a good, uh, you know, had had a lot of great, great moments to it. And, you know, I was big into Irish folklore at the time and, you know, Irish history. And that was that was one of the one of the ones I did read. That was a good one. Oh, yeah, good. Well, this is a... Most people don't even know the name. <laughs> Dragon and the Raven, Wolf the Saxon, the Young Carthaginian, True to the Old Flag, by Pike and Dyke. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't you can't get away with anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's movie titles you'd have to change. H. Ryder Haggard. Don't forget him. He wrote King It's funny because a lot of people just don't pick up books, but then, you know, if you give them, hey, check this out, and then they start reading it, and they're like, wow, this is awesome. How, you know, one of the ones that I got into was John, the original John Carter of Mars, and you realize, wow, everything was based off this, but by the time they made it into a movie, it had already been done, so it was blase. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John, yeah. Everybody forgets that that's uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. One of the original sci-fi adventures. Yep, H. Ryder Haggard here. G for feminist heroine. People of the Mist. Alan Quartermain. Montezuma. Cleopatra. Child of the Storm. Alan Quartermain. Oh, he was in uh, <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. League of Gentlemen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that was one that was pretty. That movie was terrible. Yeah, talk about a movie that that <laughs> lost the point of the book. It was a great concept, but it stunk as a movie. Stunk. Did as you a ever, movie. Carl? Have you ever read the? That was a graphic novel. Did you ever read the graphic novel by Alan Moore? I did. I'm very, I'm very familiar with that property. I was uh, I was an expert witness. It was a plagiarism case. Oh. Oh wow. It was the concept of all the Victorian heroes of fiction gathered in one place and interacting was developed by a a different producer writer and it was over at fox and fox decided to you know fox claimed that they bought league of extraordinary gentlemen from alan alan moore and that was where they got the idea and i was able to testify that you know many of of the ideas were from the, the script and were not in alan moore's novel but did exist in my in the in the plaintiff's work Oh, wow. Uh, and there was even a version uh, that uh, John Landis was going to direct at one time. Oh. In which, you know, Annie Oakley and Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty and Alan Quartermain you know, all appear in London to solve crime. Wow. Because Moriarty is still the bad guy. That, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, it was a very cool script and they got totally fucked up. Oh, that's a bummer. I mean, they most recently they did the show Penny Dreadful, which was doing that with gothic horror. You know, they had the, the werewolf and the Frankensteins and, uh, you know, Dorian Gray. And, and it's, uh, you know, the concept's interesting to bring all these characters together, but I think it's just hard because a lot of people don't know who these characters are. And I think, it, you know, Legal of Extraordinary Gentlemen had the most... N- n- notorious characters that you know that kind of gave it a, a bump but yeah it's too bad to hear that other projects like that didn't come together because i think it gets people to look back at those properties and say oh we should check those out again we should give those a chance i would say so 
Now, now I'm trying to think of all different genres that we can mash up the best characters of and have one adventurous movie in each genre. That'll be our next episode, Rumi. We'll have to do another, <laughs> another, uh, a, a, a classic character team up. And that would be great. I mean, it would also work in detective fiction. What if, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Inspector Hercule Poirot and uh, you know, Popeye Doyle could all work on the same mystery? Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> That would be a. Let's make this, Carl. Let's make this. You write it, and <laughs> me and Ruby will do the effects. Now we just need all those other positions <laughs> and a couple mil. You had mentioned uh, once. I, I heard that you said that you might have done sci-fi if you hadn't gotten sidetracked with other things. Yeah. Off the top of your head, what sci-fi story would you like to try and tell? It's a, it's a post, post-apocalyptic, and it was the, one of the first science fiction novels that was evaded the being stamped as a genre novel. Uh, it was a book called A Canticle from Leibowitz. Brilliant science fiction novel of the 50s, I believe, or 60s. It's about a, post, a post-apocalyptic future where the guardians of, uh, as in the Middle Ages, the guardians of all knowledge are priests in monasteries. The, the book is about a young priest who's at work in a monastery illuminating a manuscript that is a relic of the before the troubles because everything that survives from pre-cataclysm area is is a religious relic i mean there's, there's very few of them and what he's working on is nothing but a wiring diagram for a toaster that was found in a guy in a mechanics toolbox that survived you know atomic horror and nobody knows what it is or what it does, but he's illuminating it to make it look nice because it's a present for the Pope. And it's his job to take it to New Rome because old Rome has been destroyed. The Catholic Church survives, as it always does. And on his way, he has to cross post-apocalyptic America with this precious article hidden on his person it ends up being like an Americana road trip movie, but but America's destroyed. In the, post, in the far post-apocalyptic future. That sounds amazing. And d- does he ever find out that it's a toaster or that it's kind of worthless? Or, or? Oh, no, no, no. What, what happens is works of the prior civilization are preserved as they were in, Amer- in, in European Middle Ages, you know, in casks, in caves, you know, surrounded by salt, you know, just in a... Uh, but there's enough of a, a new technology where they're actually going into space and they're, they're leaving Earth behind because it's just too toxic. Wow. What they take into space. The young man, is, of course, dies on the road. Spoiler alert. Oh, no. <laughs> dies. A new civilization eventually builds spaceships and, and goes, uh, goes out to start again using the remnants of two prior civilizations. That's... That sounds really cool. I definitely want to check that out. It reminds me of a book I read as a kid. It was one of my favorites. It was called Motel of the Mysteries. And this was an, an, an it was more of an illustrated book. I mean, there were words in there, but it was about pictures that parodied the original Lord Carnarvon Tutankhamun um, excavation pictures. And it was a parody because it's way in the future and the world is covered with like 30 feet of garbage. And these people discover what they don't realize is a, is an old motel and they think it's all, they like assign all this significance to all the things that they find when it's just, we, we know what it is. It's a motel. Uh, I think, I think I've read that they, they talk about this one room that is reserved for the religious rites, which 
is all white porcelain. Yep. <laughs> and it's basically a motel bathroom with a, a strip of paper that says this seat has been sanitized for your convenience. <laughs> yep. And they're reading into it that it's... <laughs> That is like like in a Roman household where the household gods Lares and Penates are worshipped. Yep. This was the center of worship because it had a <laughs> lock on the door and it was clearly reserved for the you know. And then they go on and on about it. It, it, it was it was it was comical and it's, yep. it's conceit. I'm I'm so glad that you knew that. That's really yeah. I, that was one of my favorites growing up, and 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 that's it was just so funny. And and hearing your the uh, the canticle for Leibowitz, that that kind of gave me a little bit of that vibe of of uh, a world where people don't know what they have uh, and they don't recognize what it is. Exactly. Oh, that's so much fun. It was in, in its time. It was a very the groundbreaking novel, but now I don't think it's read. I don't think it's read anymore. Walter M. Miller. So what's next for you? What are you, what are you currently up to? Do you have anything going? Uh, anything? Well, I want, I'm, going to try to get, I'm trying to try to get Wolf and Blood made. Mm-hmm. Written a, raw, a romantic comedy that's you know out looking for a cast and a director. So basically, I, what I my my pat answer for when when people say what are you doing now, I say I'm either semi-retired, unemployed, or between assignments. <laughs> I'm waiting for that phone call to fix. My my favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be great? Oh man, the Wolf movie sounds amazing too. We would we would watch that in a second. And is that is that a TV show or, or a feature film? Uh, the Wolf and Blood. Yes, it's a it's a it's a franchise. It's, 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 it's they it's like a limited series or you know it could be uh, like Living Dead. It could be it could run forever. Right. You know, they, He's a he's a wolf. She's a vampire. They fight crime. What is your werewolf mythology for this? I was just going to ask. Yeah, because because I'm always that's always interesting how people deal with the werewolf, uh, the transformation. In, in civilian life, in in, in 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 the real life that my characters lead, where they're cops, mm-hmm. she volunteers at a blood bank and pilfers, so she doesn't have to bite humans. All right. She knows she when she whenever she draws blood from a volunteer, she takes you know a pint and a little extra. There you go. So, that, so she's able to satisfy her desires. And he takes uh, a one or two sick days, if it's not you know a normal weekend in his rotation. Every full moon, he takes a couple of sick days and goes to a cabin in the mountains and basically transforms, runs wild, leaves the door to the cabin open so a wolf can, you know, can get in and lie down when he's done. And then he <laughs> When he wakes up, he's in his human form. And then how how they adjust when the final confrontation comes, they revert to their most lethal form. She becomes like Wonder Woman, a tall, pale, fang woman who can just bite the shit out of anybody. Is incredibly strong and can fly. Mm-hmm. Does she have a like? Could she do bat transformation or or just uh, just some of the more human aspects of it? It just becomes an exaggeration of her human aspect. Cool. Paler, her teeth get longer. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a full Rick Baker transformation. Right, right, mm. right. But he is. He, he, he becomes, you know, a giant wolf. He becomes you know, a wolf that measures like eight feet from nose to tail and is, you know, formidable. So when the two of them wade into a crowd of ghouls, they cause great havoc. 
That sounds awesome because I, I, I like the idea that it could have, you know, you do have the mystery elements, you do have the cop elements, but every now and then you get this like, and I mean, I know we trashed on the genre, but like superhero horror elements where they're, you know, full on going berserk and, and messing some stuff up. I, 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 I am really into that idea because, because of those elements, but, but I mean, I just, I just love horror as, as, as a genre. So I, I can definitely see that being a thing. Yeah. And I love, you know, mixing the ordinary with the extraordinary. So, you know, like she, she works, the reason they've never met before while they're on the force is she only works, you know, the night shift. Okay. 10 to, you know, 10, midnight to 8 a.m. or 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. She rides a motorcycle, she wears a helmet and covers up. And she explains, she says, look, it's not like the movies, she says. I don't turn into a puddle of goo if the sunlight hits me. But it's like a, it's like a very painful uh, allergic reaction. You know, I'm allergic to the sun and if I'm in it long enough, it'll kill me. So I avoid the sun. And when I sleep, I'm vulnerable. So my house has like a hidden trap door with a little concrete vault that I get into so that nobody can you know, catch me when I'm asleep because a stake through the heart will kill anybody, especially a vampire. Oh, yeah. Are there other vampires and werewolves in that universe? Very few. So it's like a common thing. There are there are shards and remnants because you know nobody believes in them anymore. They've all been killed. They're kind of unique. There's, there's, a one, there's one great scene where they, they the creatures that are left have learned to blend in and not you know not make waves. But and they go to they have a nightclub that they go to and the doormen are two giant zombies. Nice. <laughs> and uh, as when they're going to the club, they're they're going to research. They're looking for information about their guy, the villain. And the doorman, like, stops them at the door, and he sniffs, and he sniffs them. He goes, uh-huh, okay, all right, you can go in, dog boy. <laughs> he knows who he is. And, and they, have to, they have to consult um, Bela Lugosi, who's still alive, a character similar to Bela Lugosi. Okay. <laughs> a, a, a horror film veteran of the 30s. Awesome. Who, in the 90s is still alive. That's awesome. But, uh, but he's retired from motion pictures and published an account that he died because he basically didn't age. So he kind of faked his death and has been living underground for... And he lives quietly, uh, and they, they go to see him to ask his advice. That's so cool. And, and he gets into a little discussion with the girl. He says, when did you get the gift, my dear? She says, 1910, New Orleans. He says, and she said, I, you know, for the first 40 years, I, all I could be was a... A nurse, a school teacher, or a librarian. Thank God for women's lib. <laughs> a cop, and 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 you know, there's there's a great moment where they still he he looks at her and he says, "I know you from somewhere." He says, "Didn't weren't you in Hollywood in the 20s?" And there's a he has a picture of an opening, and she is a date of Rudolph Valentino at a premiere. Oh and wow! She, yeah, and she says, "Yeah, I was here. You know, I, I was you know like I am now. I was you know 28 and gorgeous, and I was." But uh, something about cameras and me didn't work very well. It wasn't for me. Some funny cultural references. About yeah, that's that's. I, I love the concept. I mean, let's, that, yeah, let's get this made. Yeah, I, I hope that our listening uh, our listening audience is full of producers. It's it's probably less so than <laughs> I hope. If there are some producers out there who hear this, Wolf and Blood by Carl Gottlieb. 
currently at Sony Pictures. There you go. We would love that because because we always come up with ideas. We're always like, please, Marvel, Sony, you know, whoever, please make this into a thing. This is definitely a plea. Please get this made. I would love to see a werewolf. We need more werewolves just in I'll, general. I'll see you all at the uh, at the opening night party. <laughs> what's uh What's the best werewolf movie you've seen, Carl? I like uh, John Landis's. I like American Werewolf in London. Yeah, it's it it really is hard not to. Yeah, that, that's that's probably well, and the original Wolfman, even though the effects are cheesy, there's a human element to it. Well, I just I just love that scene when when the old gypsy talks to him about the curse. I, I just I love that character. I mean, I, like you said earlier, it has become a trope, but Maria Lusenskaya. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, and I just I just love that get character and and that sort of uh, the the atmosphere that they create around the the old gypsy telling him that he's pretty screwed. It holds up. That I've seen it recently, and like yes, a lot of things technically are cheesy, but when you watch it, it really if you can if you can suspend your disbelief enough to watch the movie, I mean it. it I'm sold every time. It's it's yeah. The human so story works. You know, it's all storytelling boils down to: is it human? Is it plausible? Is it authentic? Is it believable? And if it is, you got a hit. If it's not, then you've got just another cheesy effects film. Well, sure. and that's a big part of what I think the remake of The Wolfman missed the point was you had all these great special effects and it just yeah. relied on that. And and there were some great moments. I mean, I love Wolfman fighting another Wolfman and one of those guys are on fire. Come on, how can you not like that? But the rest of the movie... <laughs> wasted in a stupid just movie. wasted for, the, for a movie that didn't have enough character to, to hold it up. Well, guys, I got to go pretty soon. Oh, well, we will let you go. Thank you so much, Carl. This was a great, great afternoon for us. We hope you had a, even even half as much fun as we did. It was good for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate right. it immensely. Yeah, it Thank you, Carl. Have a great Carl. day, all right? We, have a good we had a great time talking you to too. him. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. I would love to see his werewolf vampire show get made. Sure, so, absolutely, yeah, right? To all of our big Hollywood producers who listen, yeah. uh, please, let's make this happen. Steven Spielberg, I know you're listening. You remember Carl, right? You remember <laughs> Carl, right? Yeah, make it happen. We have some big news, Rumi. This is airing on Wednesday. This is our normal Wednesday release. But this Friday, we have something really cool happening. It is Friday the 13th, and Rumi and I were asked by famous monsters of Filmland to guest host their podcast for the next couple weeks. So Rumi and I just whipped together this really, really cool episode about Friday the 13th. There's a little bit about the day and a lot about the movies in there. You can check out their podcast at the Famous Monsters Podcast. We're going to be hosting the next couple weeks starting this Friday, Friday the 13th. You can follow them on Facebook at FMFL or on Instagram and Twitter. They're at Famous Monsters. And you can also follow them on YouTube at Famous Monsters. Yeah, and their YouTube page has their TV show and some episodes of, of video content that they do, like interviewing mm-hmm. Gun Media and Ilphonic, and the, uh, who, who created the Friday the 13th game, mm-hmm. and the director of the first film, Sean right. S. Cumming- Cunningham. Yeah, it's, it's, they have a lot, a lot of great content, so go check those out and... <laughs> Come check us we're out. We're also there, too, and yeah. we're great content. Oh, man, we're so thrilled to be a part of it. We're really honored to be a part of it. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, we'll be doing some some cross-promotion with them and some, some content, so you'll get some stuff from us early. So, yeah, hopefully you'll check that out Friday the 13th. Do-do-do. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Lift off. We have a lift off.